Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jerry Clark. Oh, welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour on this fine Wednesday evening. For all five of you out there listening, an active and ongoing standoff, a drug deal gone wrong, it seems, has led to six police officers being shot, not killed, but injured. Another officer hurt in a car accident on the way to this scene. And some of the weirdest news of the day. This is from the Daily Mail. A source of theirs who goes unnamed, while at a meeting with Jeffrey Epstein in Epstein's house, snapped a shot, a picture. Yes, snapped a picture of a particular painting or portrait in Epstein's lair. No, it wasn't the... A picture that was aging and looked horrible and diseased like that of Dorian Gray. Because Epstein looked worse enough as he was. But it was a picture, a painting, of Bill Clinton. Lounging. Yeah. Bill Clinton lounging in the Oval Office is what the painting depicts. And Clinton is wearing the infamous blue dress. I'm not sure if there's a stain on it. As well as red heels. Lounging. Again. While pointing. You know, that's right. This is a painting I guess Epstein had commissioned. Or somebody had commissioned. But you can check it out on my Facebook page. On the Book of Faces. As well as other news and theories I have about this world. In particular, I think we would be a much more advanced society, at least according to this meme I found earlier today, if we um, had just had MTV continue to play music videos. We would be much further along in terms of progress as a society. But no, we went to stupid reality shows where music became secondary. So, weird photos in Epstein's house. Active shooting going on in Philly. Oh, the stock market took a dive, 800 points, because an inversion in the bond yield between the two-year bond and the 10-year treasury bond. Worries over the trade war with China. The politicking over presidential politics continues. And another weird twist in the Epstein case. An elderly judge, an elderly federal judge, presiding over a key lawsuit 
reports Politico today. This is a key lawsuit relating to financier pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. This judge died Sunday, adding another twist to the drawn-out legal saga and to efforts to unseal still secret details about the conduct of Epstein, his enablers, and one of his accusers. The Manhattan-based U.S. District Court Judge Robert Sweet passed away Sunday at age 96. I mean, that's pretty old. Sweet was appointed by President Jimmy Carter in 1978 and confirmed that same year and continued to hear and rule on cases through his last few months. He was assigned to a lawsuit, this judge of 96 years old who is now deceased, he was assigned to a lawsuit that emerged from the aftermath of Epstein's controversial plea deal a decade ago, in which Epstein escaped federal charges by pleading guilty to two prostitution-related offenses in state court. Epstein ended up spending 13 months in jail with daily furloughs that allowed him to work in his office. Of course, critics have denounced that deal. And it led to the resignation of Alexander Acosta, Alex Acosta, the labor secretary for Trump. But this lawsuit, the sex trafficking lawsuit that the 96-year-old federal judge was overlooking, pitted one of Epstein's alleged victims, Virginia Roberts Gruffer, or whatever the hell her last name is, against a longtime friend of Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, his girlfriend. In exchange for financial settlements, the accuser, Virginia Roberts, and many other victims waived their right to sue Epstein. But those waivers did not preclude lawsuits against some others, like Maxwell, who were alleged to have facilitated Epstein's effort to hire teenagers to provide massages that often involved sex. Of course, Maxwell has denied the allegations, but she settled the suit on the eve of trial in 2017 after Sweet turned down her lawyer's motion to shut down the case. The settlement did not end the controversy, however. During the course of the case, the judge, this 96-year-old judge who is now dead, approved blanket sealing of many of the submissions from both sides, detailing some of the best arguments and evidence they intended to present if the case went to trial. The secrecy eventually prompted motions from Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz, author and social media personality Mike Cernovich, and the Miami Herald to unseal some of, or all of, the records in the suit. Dershowitz, who is a former lawyer for Epstein, is seeking unsealing because he says the court files contain evidence that can prove him innocent of claims, uh, that the accuser and another woman made that they had sex with Dershowitz at Epstein's direction. Mike Cernovich has said he's offended by the secrecy in the case and eager to expose pedophilia among American elites. The Miami Herald sought the information as part of reporting for a series it wound up publishing last year. The 96-year-old judge turned down the motions, prompting a series of appeals. At an argument session earlier this month, three Second Circuit Court of Appeals judges seemed to view the secrecy in the suit as excessive and unjustified. All the judges on the panel appeared to favor making some of these records for the case public soon, but there was some discussion 
about the process for considering opening all the records. One question debated at the argument was whether the 96-year-old judge, Sweet, should oversee that process or whether it should be handed over to another judge. Well, that question is now moot. Or as Joey Herbiani would say, moo. It's like a cow's opinion. Is Lane Maxwell has opposed unsealing records in the case. In addition, last week, two anonymous individuals came forward to urge the appeals court not to release information in the court files about third parties who may have been discussed during the depositions in the case. Interest in the Epstein case has, of course, escalated following the publication of the Herald series and in the wake of a judge's ruling last month that federal prosecutors, including Acosta, violated federal law by misleading alleged victims about the status of the case against Epstein in the weeks leading up to the plea deal in 2008. So the Epstein suicide and all these lawsuits and allegations, and I'm sure there will be more because he left quite a sizable estate. I think I heard the number, something like $590 million valuation. Good Lord. And still not exactly clear what Epstein did. And of course, there are conspiracies, as there should be, on something that seems... Like, such a big deal, yet seems so opaque and vague at the same time. But we should be a little careful about conspiracies. Because though they're often warranted, and I'm not looking down my nose at anyone, I want to be clear. Sometimes we can get the best of ourselves. For instance, I found a piece from a good friend of mine, Jeffrey Tucker. And he writes that some years back, a friend of his a bit sheepishly came to him and suggested that his friend suggested that they suspected the existence of a plot at his workplace. Some people he had previously trusted at the workplace seemed to be up to no good. Because, well, I was familiar with the situation. He asked what my opinion was. I looked into it and concluded provisionally that his conspiracy theory didn't seem to be true about all the something afoot at the workplace. He rested easy. Until a few weeks later, when his theory was not only confirmed, the reality revealed was much worse than he had even imagined. The nest of vipers was finally cleaned out, but the situation did confirm what most people suspect. The world is full of bad guys. Bad guys can be sneaky. They hatch plots. They hide those plots. You have to connect the dots. Once you do, you look for evidence, either confirming or denying your conspiracy. Once you put it together, you see a pattern, and then you look for mistakes that the conspirators make, and they always make them. When they do, you act. Then, like at the end of a Scooby-Doo episode, you expose the bad guys. This is just a small-scale conspiracy, folks, which is much easier to confirm, like some workplace or familial dispute. Much easier to confirm these conspiracies that go on in our everyday lives than to confirm or deny a big theory, such as the U.S. is like the hidden hand destabilizing Hong Kong or 
Well, the Russia conspiracy that Trump is a unwitting Russian agent or he serves at the pleasure of Putin. Or, of course, any conspiracy involving Jeffrey Epstein. Much more difficult to prove anything or even wrap your arms around what exactly the conspiracy might be, though it does seem like some bad guys are up to something. Sometimes you get a theory in your head and then make up connections that don't exist. What seems like evidence might just be static, like on these airwaves. Your explanations can be too elaborate, of course. There's no evidence. They would know to cover it all up, of course. Confirming the existence of a conspiracy requires the attitude of humility, a sense of proportionality, and a scientific frame of mind, always looking for evidence that might refute as well as confirm your theory. Of course, in today's wild west of information, where essentially anybody can communicate with people all over the world almost instantaneously for almost no cost. So in today's wild west of information, are people humble? Do they have a sense of proportionality? Do they look at the evidence and the facts in a scientific way, trying to refute their own theory while also confirming it? Or, well, no. In this day and age, especially when it comes to politics, ain't nobody got time for that. There are two authors out there, Nancy Rosenblum and Russell Muirhead, argue that there's a big difference between traditional conspiracy theory, moored by the demands of evidence, and the new conspiracism, as they call it, which has no interest in the demands of authentication. The new conspiracism, they write, obliterates nuance and judgment and replaces it with a distorted unreality in which some things are wholly good and others, say Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, wholly evil. They say this is its appeal. And something with such political force will be taken up everywhere by those who seek to abandon the regular process and disrupt established institutions, and especially by those who reject the idea of a loyal opposition. To elaborate, the nature of modern politics is drawing everyone into a battle of friends and enemies. The stories, the political stories we tell ourselves, scapegoat and demonize the other, the opposition, whoever you choose to cast in that role. Once that happens, rational thought can easily go out the window. Every horrible accusation is considered true, or at least true enough to achieve the preset political aim. As a friend-enemy dichotomy intensifies, conspiracy theory advances and not without evidence. The more politicized society becomes, the more conspiracies really do exist. And a certain amount of this public paranoia is going to be a feature of any society with an overweening state, with a massive leviathan big government. There are trillions of dollars swirling around Washington. The money is never fully accounted for. There are a hundred thousand lobbyists, donors, takers, taxers, spenders, and a new scandal emerges every few days. Meanwhile, the apologists for this nasty, nasty, insidious system never stop telling us that the system is good, that society would fall apart without it, that our masters are serving us well and we should be grateful. Just in case we are not super happy about it, though, 
there is a vast machinery of compulsion and coercion and violence to shore it up if your doubts go a little too far. And given all this, finding a conspiracy in the political system is, well, as easy as money for old rope. That said, there are three common errors that happen in conspiracy theories. These are the three common errors that are often committed when weaving a conspiracy theory. First, conspiracy theory imagines the existence of planned order where none actually exists. People do this often with the economy as well. It posits centralized intentionality behind all events. This error has ancient origins. Surely it's the pharaoh or the emperor to whom we owe our blessings, and for our misfortune we blame the same for evil forces. But it gets worse in a networked global society in which spontaneous order extends unto infinity via institutions that no one is really in a clear position to control. Great economist Nobel Prize winning Friedrich Hayek explained that the order around us, quote, arose from unintentionally conforming to certain traditional and largely moral practices, many of which men tend to dislike, whose significance they usually fail to understand, whose validity they cannot prove, and which have nonetheless fairly rapidly spread by means of an evolutionary selection, the comparative increase of population and wealth of those groups that happen to follow them. The incredulous refuse to accept the reality of spontaneous order, mainly because the way our brains work. We find it easier to posit simple cause and effect. A great or evil man did this, or a wonderful, honorable man succeeded as my champion. Either way, evil or good, there had to be somebody there with a plan executed from above with perfect foresight. The second mistake conspiracy theories often make is they exaggerate the efficiency of political power and of power in general. Governments are notoriously incompetent, owing to the knowledge problem of making any plans and also owing to the lack of a price system to signal rational behavior. Day to day, governments flounder just to keep up with accounting, pay off the beneficiaries, deliver the mail, keep the subsidies flowing. Just think about, well, the scandals in the Veterans Administration over the years, and there you have it. Or think of any experience you've had in dealing with government. A successful conspiracy is far more likely to occur in the private sector, simply because government is so often so bumbling. This reality creates something paradoxical, in a way. No one overestimates the competence of a powerful elite more than, well, somebody who may be well-intentioned, but a conspiracy theorist. Third, conspiracy tends to attribute the existence of evil was more plausibly explained by incompetence, ignorance, or simple error. Occam's razor is a good tool. It doesn't prove that plots never exist, but it serves as a check on our imagination. But it's easy to get attracted to these things. It almost has a, a Gnostic appeal, like you have secret knowledge about the world that everybody else just doesn't know. Especially when events aren't explained, and you know pretty certainly that things are being covered up, and you're being fed a line of BS. So it's easy to sort of 
It's not only easy, it's attractive. It makes sense, honestly, that when you're fed so many lies by so many different outlets that you look for your own truth. And we love to flatter ourselves, myself included, that we know some inside information that explains the world, whereas the hoi polloi out there are hopelessly blind. Believing this creates an adrenaline rush for sure, one so powerful that the desire for it fuels the sale of millions of books a year and countless internet forums. Part of all of us should delight in the modern reality that hardly anyone believes the civic orthodoxy anymore, that we don't believe the elites. The left doesn't believe the elites, the right doesn't believe the elites, unless they are the elites. But even on some of the elites don't believe in the elites. That a lot of the, well, tall tales we've been told about our government, they're being exposed. And we should, saying it again, delight in this fact. It creates a lot of opportunities for us to move forward and do great things together. But it also brings some potential dangers. If we really want to shore up a culture of trust, the best way is to expose obviously true conspiracies, such as how the political system works, how the government works. And we should rally around institutions that are better at ferreting out bad actors and rewarding good ones, such as found in, well, markets. There's so much we don't know and so much we're not being told, especially by the official spokesman for the establishment. But often I, I step back and I think, well, the official establishment isn't really that different than the populace. It's an irony often in history that the radicals, the revolutionaries that want to burn the system down as soon as they get power, they all of a sudden become very much like the elites they just replaced. So maybe it's not a few people or a hundred or a thousand people pulling the strings. Maybe it's a system that we all kind of rely on but don't really know. And if we keep playing this game, this system, it's a point I constantly make. If we keep playing this dishonest game for power, we're going to continue to tear our society apart. We'll have to see going forward. Let me be clear, there are real conspiracies. in your family, in your office, in your church, in your whatever group. It could be small and local and quaint. It could be massive, like corporations and governments working together to keep the little man down. But here's my test. No matter what politician, whether it's Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren, comes along and says they're going to be your champion and take on the elites, look at what they actually are promising. 
does it actually change the system? Or are we just shuffling chairs on the deck of the Titanic? I tend to think it's the latter. There's much at stake. But it seems like we're always going back to the same well. That well is poison. So we better stop drinking the water. Because there's something in there. That said, folks, gotta hit a break. First, I want to tell you about a great sponsor, a great guy. He loves beer. He loves pizza. Well, he loves just having a good time. He's a man's man, a person's person. Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. He changed his own life by investing in real estate, learning the real estate market, managing different investment properties, and he went to Bo Goodson School of Real Estate. And now he's an agent for the Goodson Group. So not only has he changed his own life at this point, he's helped change the lives of others by helping them buy or sell their home here in the River Region. It's one of the biggest financial decisions people make in their lives, buying or selling a home. And Eddie Bader is there to help people walk through the process hand-in-hand if you need and make it go smoothly, swiftly, and well, with the best price, of course. Love Eddie Bader. Love that he sponsors the show. But I love that he is effective at what he does. I love that it, he took what helped him and is now helping other people with it. So if you're looking to buy or sell a home here in the River Region, if you're looking for somebody to help manage your current investment property... Give Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group a call. His number, 322-0662. Again, that number for Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. Put this number down if you need a real estate agent. 322-0662. I'll be right back after this very short break. Joey Clark. brought to you by Express Fitness 24-7. I've been going to the Hillwood Shopping Festival Plaza Shopping Center location on Zelda Road. Part of the facility is right above Firehouse Subs there on Zelda Road, but also right across the parking lot, and that's where I spend most of my time getting in all those heavy compound lifts and working on those vanity lifts. You know, you got to look good. Well, for yourself, number one, you got to do it for you, but also for the ladies, or for anybody else, for the fellas, depends on how 
Well, you'll like it. But Express Fitness 24-7 is so convenient because it's in the name, folks. Open 24-7, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Once you become a member for a small monthly sign-up fee, I believe it's like 30, 40 bucks a month, month to month. You don't have to sign a long-term contract. So if you want to just try it out for a few months, you can. And if your schedule is wonky, if you think, oh, I don't have time to go to this class or that class, no, just sign up. You get a key fob. You have access 24-7 to get the work done. There are personal trainers. They're on staff as well uh, if you are looking for a little extra coaching. So check them out. You can go to expressfitness24.com, find which location is best for you. But I highly encourage you, come work out with me and uh, Alex. Alex and I, and we'll, we'll put you to work. So I'm starting to look good. You know, I'm starting to look real good. I'm going to be the best-looking person here in the building before too long, if I say so humbly. Now, I mentioned earlier, especially when you get into the world of conspiracy theory, but just everyday politics, and it's something I harp on constantly, is this friend-enemy distinction. Now, you think, well, sometimes you got friends, sometimes you got enemies. True, but... And it's a big, hairy butt, excuse me, pardon me. That shouldn't, in my opinion, be your guiding MO. Who's my friend? Who's my enemy? Constantly. Because in that case, you might actually be looking for enemies where none are to be found. Doesn't mean you always look for friends. This means that sometimes the person you assume is an enemy is in fact not an enemy. You're just ready to brand them that way. Now, have you ever been part of a Twitter flame war over politics or on the Book of Faces, just bitching and moaning and insulting one another? Ever had a dinner party just go to hell because of some political argument? I mean, there's so many examples, too many numerous to name, so many too numerous to name, and it happens for people of all sorts of generations. At times, I'm astounded by the so-called adults in the room and how they behave. But again, I, I'm not looking for any enemies here. These are painful struggles. Don't kid yourself. When you get into that argument on social media or over the dinner table... When it's supposed to be a good, delightful evening, it doesn't feel good. Very few people actually relish the fight. They're painful struggles. Mostly pointless is, I think, the biggest part of the pain. It just seems fruitless, feckless, pointless. But they, these little fights on social media and in the flesh, they reveal a deeper truth about politics. Politics sets people against each other in a zero-sum game. That's pretty much the whole point of contemporary politics, despite the hollow pleas by Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or anybody running for president, that I'm going to unify the nation. B.S. The last time we were unified is when we were attacked on 9-11. That was the last time we were unified. Politicians don't unify as common enemies do. But is that necessarily a good thing? 
It's one thing to have a common enemy that's actually an enemy that actually killed thousands of people and you go after that specific person. I remember sitting there 12 years old watching the Twin Towers on fire, watching them fall, and the first thought I had was we need to kill whoever did this. Not anybody kind of loosely branded as, no, I want to know the specific people who did this. They need to be brought to justice. I believe in justice, but I don't believe in looking for enemies all over the world. And under every rock and behind every tree, and on every Facebook comment section or Twitter feed or whatnot. I think we're all too often looking for enemies when no harm has been directly done to us by those people we brand as enemies. And the reason we do it is because we've been trained to do it. That's the whole point of contemporary politics. Set people against each other in a zero-sum game for power. And it's now ever more defaulting to its most extreme forms, unfortunately. In politics, of course, winners take all. It shouldn't be the case if we actually lived in a society based in liberty. And we should hold dear the liberty that we do still have. But given that some liberties have definitely eroded, especially in the realm of economic rights... And we've so bastardized that word rights, by the way, that it means anything that I might want. Sure. So in a world where politics is paramount, even in a country based in liberty like our own, winners take all in politics. The losers lose all. We're supposed to be good sports about it, especially the losers observing the beauty of democracy and acquiescing to the results, but something has changed since the election of Donald Trump. The partisan wars are more intense and never seem to end. The divisions are growing deeper. Politics seems to divide the world between friends and enemies constantly. Even to the point of people going, I'm canceling my $42 membership to go ride a stationary bike that doesn't actually move my ass anywhere. That'll show President Trump, you orange freak. It's dumb. But we're constantly making these distinctions. Who are our friends? Who are our enemies? All based on, largely, who's in the White House. We were doing it under Obama as well. But it does seem heightened now that Donald Trump is president. Let's give a counterexample, though. Whereas politics divides us into friends and enemies and constantly does so even without just cause, in markets, you might have a business competitor. You might even have disdain and contempt in your heart for your competitor. But at the end of the day, even with market competition, trade makes us come together. At the end of the day, when you trade with somebody, both parties are benefiting. It's the very definition of win-win. Most of the material wealth around you comes from this win-win dynamic. Its discovery and development in the late Middle Ages would eventually restructure the experience of life itself. We take this all for granted today.
with every trade ending in a mutual expression of thanks. But, of course, we know, and I know especially, and I'm one of them, and I try not to be. There's a lot of self-loathing here. We all know people whose whole lives are politicized. They seethe with loathing of their enemies. They come to the defense of their friends, defined by common enemies. They defend their friends even when their friends do wrong. You're trying to have a normal dinner with one of them, and they keep lecturing people as if they're being filmed for a Sunday talk show. You just want to say, hey, can you please order a cocktail and chill out for a bit, or do I need to order you a blunt? What's puzzling about the contrast between markets, commerce, and trade, and politics is how the same people the same exact people behave differently in different contexts. Go to the mall, a local music festival, the club scene in a city, the bar scene downtown here in Montgomery. Go to the farmer's market out on Taylor Road or all over this lovely state, Alabama. We've got some great stuff at farmer's markets. Go to any chain restaurant. What you see for the most part is people getting along. There's occasionally a hiccup here or there, but largely in these places of commerce, people get along. And often you never really see the great political struggles of our times evident there. Essentially markets, commerce, being productive, being entrepreneurs, being producers and consumers, requires that you have to, to a certain degree, even if you don't like somebody, have to play nice. But if you give these very same people who are going to the farmer's market and having a grand old time buying stuff, you put some of these same people in a different context, a different forum, in which they have to argue about politics, and they become almost unrecognizable. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? What we see here is a contrast in perspectives about how the world can and should work. It's all about peace, trade, and progress, is it? All about peace, trade, and progress for everyone. That's what I believe. It is all about peace, trade, and progress. Or is it about struggle, destruction, victory, and rule? Taking the pro-trade and pro-peace position are those once called, well, liberal values. Classical liberal values. The same convictions from Voltaire to Thomas Paine to your local merchant today that believes that commerce is a great palliative. Taking the pro-conflict perspective, are many people who consider their personal identity and life mission bound up with left-wing or right-wing ideology. And often this left-wing versus right-wing is distinguished by their cultural Values, not their preference for using the government, the state, as a means of social and economic control. The most famous theorist of conflict that life is all about, struggle, destruction, victory, and rule, was Karl Marx. For a century and a half, Marxism has shaped what we call leftism. Less well-known are his contemporaries, his counterparties on the right. 
from Thomas Carlyle to Madison Grant to Carl Schmitt. Among this long line of pro-conflict right-wing thinkers, Schmitt, Carl Schmitt, is the most compelling and somebody to be grappled with. Because at the end of the day, I think his ideas are evil. If you believe in liberty, freedom, and trade, if you believe in prosperity for all, don't tread on me, don't tread on anyone, it is worth your time to read the opposition who thinks those ideas are just bad from the get-go. And as it turns out, the theories of Carl Schmitt was the lead, Carl Schmitt was the leading opponent of freedom in Germany during the rise of the National Socialists, the rise of the Nazis. Essentially, Carl Schmitt, what, what was he? He was a... It was a Nazi! It was a Nazi man! Yes, he was. In a way, he was their political prophet. His own thought was influenced by Marxism, of course, but the thinking of both traced to, and I don't have to get deep into the philosophy here, but Hegel. It's a shift in Germany that took place in the early 1800s. Marx emerged as the paragon of the left, and Schmidt embodied the right. In a strange way, they agreed on the essentials, but ended up applying it in different ways. At least Marx acknowledged the achievements of classical liberalism, of freedom, of peace and trade. But Carl Schmitt, this literal... It was a Nazi! It was a Nazi man! ...was not so gracious to the very idea of liberty. In his 1932 essay, The Concept of the Political, he heaps disdain on the fathers of liberty precisely because they imagined a world of peace, prosperity, and progress. According to Schmidt, politics must demand the sacrifice of life. But liberty doesn't tolerate that. Here's what Schmidt wrote. No consistent individualism can entrust someone other than the individual himself, the right to dispose of the physical life of the individual. So essentially, anybody believes in individualism, freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, oh, would only entrust individuals to guide their own lives. Amazing. What, what a crazy idea. And individualism in which anyone other than the free individual himself were to decide upon the substance and dimension of his freedom would only be an empty phrase. For the individual as such, there is no enemy with whom he must enter into a life and death struggle if he personally does not want to. Shocking. Freedom of choice. To compel him to fight against his will, writes Carl Schmidt, from the viewpoint of the private individual, is a lack of freedom and repression. All the liberal pathos turns against repression and the lack of freedom. That it, what this liberalism, this libertarianism, classical liberalism, still admits of state, government, and politics, is confined to securing the conditions for liberty and eliminating infringements on freedom. And that's what I believe in, folks. I believe in a government that secures our basic liberties and freedoms. And that's it. And we are so far gone from that. Though we are running, I think the best parts of our system continue to be there and protect us from our worst instincts today. And keep in mind, this is exactly what somebody like Carl Schmidt opposes with every breath of his being. 
And it begs the question, what's so awful about liberty? And it's a no-brainer to this, well... It's a Nazi! It was a Nazi man! This would mean that life would consist entirely of trades and debates, but no bloodshed. Oh, how awful. This would be a world without the distinction of friend and enemy, and hence a world without politics. He found such a world dreadfully boring, devoid of any meaning. Such a world, quote, might contain many very interesting competitions, but there would not be a meaningful antithesis whereby men could be required to sacrifice life, authorized to shed blood and kill other human beings. His point is that the friend-enemy grouping is ever-present, and regardless of the aspects which this possibility implies for morality, art, and economics. In our hyper-politicized times, folks, when people are discovering new excuses to hate one another, when identity politics makes it possible merely to look at a person to discern him or her to be the enemy, and when the blood sport of demonizing people based on competing ideological paradigms is on the rise, both people on the right need to beware. People on the right not fall in the camp of Carl Schmidt, and people on the left need to give up Karl Marx. The two Karls, they suck. But unfortunately, with our bulk works to protect our liberty, fighting back against this onslaught, their ideas are on something of a resurgence. But by exalting these twin brothers of struggle, these champions of dehumanizing our neighbor based on politics, let us be aware of what we are rejecting. We are tossing out the foundations of material progress if we give in to these guys. We are tossing out so many peaceful relationships that have allowed people from all different backgrounds to come to this nation, and though it hasn't been utopia, to eventually find a better life for themselves and for their friends, their families, and their community at large. If we give in to the left or the right authoritarians who preach struggle and fight and finding your enemy... We're giving up the good life as our founding fathers understood it. We are throwing out the greatest innovation in the ideas of history, the insight that human beings can cooperate to their mutual betterment without a central point of control, or for lack of a better word, a central conspiracy. And if you read enough of these two, whether it's Karl Schmidt or Karl Marx, you'll end up in a very dark place. But I'll end tonight from an insight of an old classical liberal, a brilliant man, Voltaire, a true voice of sanity. He made a point way back about the London stock market. It's a passage that would cause the two Carls, whether Karl Marx or Karl Schmidt, to scream in despair. Quote, go into the London Stock Exchange, a more respectable place than many a court, and you will see representatives from all nations gathered together for the utility of men. Here, Jew, Muslim, and Christian deal with each other as though they were all of the same faith and only apply the word infidel to people who go bankrupt. Here, the Presbyterian trusts the Anabaptist and the Anglican accepts a promise from the Quaker. On leaving these peaceful and free assembly, some go to the synagogue and others for a drink. 
This one goes to be baptized in a great bath in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That one has his son's foreskin cut and some Hebrew words he doesn't understand mumbled over the child. Others go to their air church and await the inspiration of God with their hats on, and everybody is happy. Indeed. Liberty does imagine and work towards a world of happiness that strikes me is a much better model than either the right or the left theory that what we need is fight, struggle, find your enemies, and ruin them. Liberty is a much better model than the daft and dumb nincompoopery fighting it out every day on social media. Especially the trolls trying to draw you to become a pawn and an illiberal ambition to make all of our lives even more miserable for their greedy power lust. Now let's be clear. We all get a little worked up sometimes. We can all get into heated arguments. But unless somebody actually picks your pocket or breaks your leg or attacks you, they are not your enemy. There is the potential for peace. That potential should be borne out. It's smart to prepare for the worst, but don't try to bring the worst about because it would be a good thing. Thank you for listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. We actually need to live up to the Declaration, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. and give up our addiction to power and control. Joey Clark.